what it comes down to though, and, and I'd say our most mature customers is the security engineering teams are working you know, hand in hand with developers. Uh, the same things like identity, detective controls, infrastructure security, the perimeter, all that can now be defined in software. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Hello, and welcome to Status Go. I am Derek Brost, and I have with me today Bill Shin. Uh, today, we're talking about cloud security, specifically a few topics dealing with the changing culture of engineering and security, which has evolved quite a bit from yesteryear. We'll also cover some common patterns and practices in successfully managing risk in cloud operations. And then time permitting, Bill and I will go over some of the innovations uh, in emerging services when it comes to detective, preventative, restorative controls uh, that make cloud security journey more efficient and effective, hopefully. Um, I wanted to share... (laughs) Wanted to share with everyone. Uh, I'm excited with, to have Bill on the show because uh, I was present, Bill, when you were presenting at uh, to our executive team when we had uh, come in for to Seattle there for the AWS Premier Partnership EBC meeting that we had, and you were one of the presenters. Obviously, I'm a biased audience and security, but you were one of the presenters, and it was fascinating to kind of hear you talk specifically to that executive audience. That was that was great. So I'm excited. Um, can you tell us, Bill, kind of a little bit of your story? How did you get, you know, where you are? How did you get to this role in this uh, in this position? Sure. Thanks, Derek. Uh, thanks for having me on the show this morning. I'm pretty excited to talk with you again. Love talking to customers about cloud security and pretty passionate about the topic. I guess, uh, you know, I came, came to AWS about seven and a half years ago after working in security architecture and engineering roles uh, at some big banks and, and a couple of big enterprises. The thing that motivated me most about the cloud from the prospect of security was just speed. It took, you know, a long time to do security projects. They were capital intensive, uh, took a lot of meetings to the investment committee, a lot of proof of concept, a lot of hardware kit, a lot of rack and stack. Uh, just took a really long time. The pace of IT was a little slower back then. Uh, procurement took a longer time. <laughs> You're buying, you know, multi-million dollar sets of hardware and uh, security solutions. And, and that's a pretty big, pretty big investment. So you got to yeah. kind of get it right. Um, and so it constrains you, it constrains the speed at which you can move. And security really has to be the fastest thing in the enterprise, um, faster than the threat landscape, faster than the regulatory landscape, and, and certainly keep it up to enable the business to grow in a secure way. And I saw cloud as this programmable way to provision infrastructure. Uh, principally, you could you could see you had better visibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could query things with APIs. And so you had just the ability to move a little faster. Uh, solutions were, were built, data center architectures were built in text files things like CloudFormation templates or Terraform templates. So the design of a network architecture, the design of a monitoring infrastructure, is just so much more flexible. You could treat it as code. You can make small iterative changes. Um, if you use partner solutions and you know vendors from the security industry, you can select those in a, a much more dynamic fashion. And I think it just it presented a possibility to me that uh, we could move the security industry a lot faster if it could be more programmable and more... Uh, you know, flexible versus capex purchases and large data center buildouts. So I think that's what that's what really motivated me to come to cloud. Um, it's just making security faster, right? I think as things have progressed, you know, we've invested a lot in security over the years. We have around thirty security services, if you include some of the governance and management services. Uh, 
you know, that that's democratizing security. And it's one of the things oh, we've yeah. been focused on uh, a lot lately is making sure that, you know, anybody from a developer with a credit card to large enterprises, uh, you know, banks and, and financial firms like Goldman Sachs or Barclays or Vanguard, Fidelity, I mean, a lot of the folks that are you know, AWS customers and, and moving to the cloud in earnest, uh, they can, they all get the same features. So we make an innovation in cryptography, we make an innovation in monitoring, uh, everybody benefits from that. And so there's no additional investment on the part of the customer. They can just wake up every day and get a few new features. Uh, so that's, I guess that's what motivated me to come to the cloud. And I think uh, making good progress on, on making security faster. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things, Bill, you mentioned that just gave me a flashback was, you know, earlier in my career, I remember having to to do some, you know, what now in an, in an easy API that you provide to do traffic mirroring uh, is something that, you know, many years ago, I used to have to sit there and pour through, especially around fiber optics, trying to tap into fiber optics and figure out, okay, the prism needs to, can't divert more than X percent of light <laughs> over this distance and all these things to calculate. I, I didn't really care about, you know, the prisms and, and, and capturing light. What I was really caring about is how do I see this data that's flowing over this line? But it was so complicated and it was, especially at that time, it was, you know, quite capital intense to say, hey, I want to monitor you know, how many different uh, fiber optic links and this is going to cost me tens of thousands of dollars. And now I look at, you know, what you released, I think it was last year um, at Reinforce was basically, hey, you just, you know, here's this API, you can turn on traffic mirroring, you can turn it off, you can, you know, move it this way, you can move it that way, you can analyze it with our tools or somebody else's tools. I mean, that's just immensely different than even 10 years ago. I agree. I think one of the things that's pushed the security industry, uh, both as a challenge and an opportunity, is to be more engineering focused. You know, I think uh, a lot of people, most most security organizations did a lot of buy, like they bought a lot of their security tools. And that's still mm -hmm. the case. They're still a robust partner ecosystem. And a lot of folks in the marketplace and, and traditional security partners are great. Uh, I think a lot of it has come down to more of a builder culture, though. Uh, developers, engineers, uh, architects, they can go out and pick from almost 200 services to build data platforms, analytics platforms, you know, the next level of machine learning uh, architectures. Security, you know, has that same benefit now and security can can build. What it comes down to, though, and, and I'd say our most mature customers is the security engineering teams are working, you know, hand in hand with developers. Uh, the same things like identity, detective controls, infrastructure security, the perimeter, all that can now be defined in software, whether that's templates or code or scripts. Um, those artifacts get pushed out along with the application. They're using uh, modern continuous integration, continuous deployment platforms, uh, whether that's you know open source stuff like Jenkins or partner solutions like the Atlassian stack or things like our, our code platform, so code commit, code deploy, code build, et cetera. You know, getting security working in that, that software factory has been a really accelerant to partnering up with the engineering organizations. So the, I'd say the most you know, the most mature customers are federating out their security internally as well. It's just impossible mm -hmm. for a central security team to manage every workload. Uh, they have to rely on partnerships with their engineering teams. Seeing more and more that customers' uh, development organizations are hiring security engineers uh, into those development shops, not just relying on a central security organization. A lot of customers do it with a, a cloud center of excellence, just so they get the uh, you know they get over the hump in terms of uh, getting kind of everybody on board. Maybe it's a centralized function, but but it, it turns pretty quickly to be decentralized and federated where they can move faster and independently, but with a known set of good artifacts and good central patterns that a security team has helped build. I think a clear sign of whether uh, a security organization is, you know, kind of moving along at the right speed is, you know, how, how many code commits are the 
right. the, the security organization doing into the code repos of the rest of the, of the company, right, or the rest of the firm. So they're they're building APIs of their own. Uh, they're publishing templates and, and you know products in a service catalog, things like that that other dev teams can use that are hardened and, and meet the you know control requirements of the CISO and the risk officer. But they're they're committing that same code back to a repository of artifacts for the rest of the development organization to use. It's a it's a it's great to see, honestly. And um, you know, it's quite yeah. different. I mean, it's really quite different from yesteryear. When I think about, you know, my you know, I've been doing this over twenty years. When I think about earlier in my career as a security officer, it was really about um, you know we talk about shift left, and I'd like to cover that. But it was really the right, very right hand side of that equation. It was really. You know, after the code's been pushed, after we've had, you know, after it's already been smoke tested and it's out there and users are using it, you know, security was really kind of a bouncer at the door. It was, you know, how do I, how do I detect what's happening at the very last stage from the public, from the users? And how do I um, prevent things, you know, and effectively security officers, you know, many years ago were kind of in that mindset of how do I shut this down if this isn't the way I want this? or this isn't the way it should be, how do I just stop it? And I see now when I work with my clients, especially uh, who are in cloud, that they, you know, they've really done that shift left. They've really started to not only integrate their security teams into you know, the development practices where before they were probably more focused honestly on endpoints and end users rather than the data and the applications. And now that they've shifted over, um, they're catching things much easier. And I think it it leads to less consternation than maybe when I was um, an early security officer is because I didn't have to go in there and say, hey, there's a problem. You need to stop what you're doing. Instead, it's kind of more of the uh, let me help you show you the pattern and practice that will make this successful. And then that way, when you release the final code, everybody knows security development. Everybody knows that this is good to go. It uh, doesn't mean there can't be issues you know, afterwards, but it means everybody's prepared and on the same page instead of kind of this adversarial relationship, right? I agree. I think, I think there's two kind of two factors that have uh, facilitated that. You know, one is um, there's an earlier signal. The ability to detect new applications and new workloads under development uh, is just faster in the cloud. So if someone's spinning up a new account within your organization, you know, you don't, you don't have to choose between yes and no. You can choose to let people continue to innovate and, and be autonomous, but have visibility into that. So you let a developer move fast. Uh, maybe like a good example is creating identity roles within AWS. So uh, if you are building an application inside of AWS and you want to call a bunch of other a- APIs, right? Uh, rather than having fixed credentials uh, like password to databases, things like that, you have what are known as, as instance roles or execution roles or identity and access management roles that applications can assume. So you, you're essentially giving an application an identity, temporary short-term credentials that are constantly rotated. Great signal for a security team to see that a developer is in the early stages of building an application. You know, you can let them build uh, and just alarm on things, monitor what they're creating. And then when they're creating critical uh, resources like identity policies or encryption keys or network resources, uh, new internet endpoints like load balancers, security can say, hmm, looks like they're doing some development over there. Uh, you know, it's it's 180 days, 200 days from going production. You know, we're going to get in there really early and see it. And so you just have that signal and that mm-hmm. visibility. Um, the other thing I think that's happened and, and continues to happen is um, we're freeing up resources, right? I mean, security teams used to be focused on, I mean, if you look at most traditional security teams in big enterprises, they have, you know, large analytics platforms like Sims and things like that. And those are fantastic solutions, but I'd, I'd wager that a decent portion of the time spent by security engineers is keeping that infrastructure yeah. running. 
uh, keeping their own databases optimized, keeping their own analytics platforms and the ETL, in, you know, the, the extract transform load of, of log messages and analytics, they have to, they're having to pull all that in. Um, and that's a lot of infrastructure plumbing and a lot of time doing systems administration work that could be better spent doing application security reviews and analytics and deep dives on, you know, uh, threat actors, things like that. And so I think we're giving time back is one of the things. They're not focused on infrastructure security as much. They're not having to do anything with patch panels or, or physical firewalls. Um, the infrastructure runs, it's easy to replace and upgrade. And, and that all happens because of cloud. And so they're able to focus more on their own applications, right? Using the SIM tools to the best of their ability, not having to maintain the storage, uh, being able to focus on developer code, not necessarily every little infrastructure bit and byte that, that has to support that, that, that new application. They can really focus on what the developer is trying to do. Uh, we, we talk a lot about undifferentiated heavy lifting mm-hmm. and how we try to help, help remove that. Uh, I'll tell you, running a key management system is a thankless job. Right? It's, <laughs> it's a tier zero service. It cannot fail. If you lose access to your encryption keys, your data is unavailable. Um, super, super expensive, very capital intensive, absolutely you know, top availability requirements in almost any company. Uh, and we have KMS that, you know, it supports over 100 services, uh, somewhere around 60 of those services. You manage your own keys, your own customer managed keys. You have visibility into the, the policies on those keys, who's using those keys, uh, you know, who you've given an ability to grant uh, on that key uh, to decrypt an object or de- decrypt a, you know, a, a, an instance or something like that. So I think it's, it's a classic example of just freeing up that time and, and giving security engineers and, and security operations folks the ability to focus on, you know, the core of what they're supposed to do. Well, I think the other great thing with, especially with the key management there is not only do you take it, you make it much easier to, like you said, rotate and track and manage that, but also it can be, it's a primitive that can be easily leveraged across so many services. So you can apply those keys. Uh, you don't have to have different systems of key management and distance, different systems of, you know, key integration uh, through between storage and, and other elements. And I think that's very advantageous as well as you can use the same constructs, the same principles, and just leverage those over and over and over, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the cost is dramatically reduced as well. I mean, if you look at, I mean, encryption is a good example. Logging is a good example. Permission policies and what we have is um, with service control policies and all the access kind of administration, that, that's largely either free and just built into mm-hmm. the platform or a very nominal cost. And you're only paying for what you use versus buying, say, a, a giant key management infrastructure with a bunch of HSMs on premises. You know, that's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in some cases. So it's um, being able to democratize encryption. Um, Werner Vogels, our, our CTO, has been, you know, uh, on stage for, at Reinforce, reInvent every, or reInvent every year, pretty much to, you know, encouraging customers to encrypt everywhere, right? Uh, and we want to make that possible so that it's no longer a choice between, well, it's really expensive to encrypt this data. Maybe I won't do it versus there's really no reason not to encrypt the data. Right? Yeah. And I like to tie, you know, tie that to what we were talking about before, which is, you know, now we can, the security teams uh, and the developments kind of together or developers together, um, you know, or independently, but the, the security teams can now give those pat those common patterns to the developers and basically say, Hey, if you're going to, you know, store something, or if you're going to, um, you know, if you're going to roll out this application um, with EBS or, or however you're going to design your application, here are the ways in which, you know, key management will run and operate. Here's how you can leverage these keys. Here's what we've either created for you or you can create uh, and leverage and just do this consistently. And you take away a lot of that, either the friction of kind of the, you know, a developer saying, I don't know how to use key management systems. <laughs> I don't I don't want to know how to use an HSM and, and, and deal with that. Uh, but you also take, in addition to that, taking away that friction, you also, you know, accelerate um, 
their ability to be compliant so that you don't have to follow back. And you can still do that, right? So through you know config rules or whatever, you can still ensure that things were created the way they should be. Uh, but at the same time, you're hopefully having that team go forward knowing that first instead of um, you know having to uh, you know effectively having to catch them and stop them and having to go back again. So I think that's been you know very the enablement of you know just use this principle, use this practice, and further will ensure you know kind of trust but verify will ensure that uh, that you've done that correctly in case you don't know. And it really really helps um, enable those teams be successful where maybe before. Uh, there was too, just too much friction or too much uh, concern. Yeah, and, and encryption is one of those areas where you really don't want to make it up on the fly. You want to use known patterns. Uh, you know, anytime we, you know, internally, you know, anybody, anytime anybody is using encryption inside of AWS, we have a, a team of crypto bar raisers. Um, they're basically cryptographers and people who are really excellent, not only at, you know, cryptography itself as a practice with the math and everything, but also just the implementation, using libraries correctly, using policies correctly on keys, uh, it's not something you want every team making up themselves, right? Having mm -hmm. those known patterns and really uh, ensuring that they're using proper algorithms and cipher suites. And those are all things that, you know, you want really consistently done across an enterprise, especially if you have compliance requirements for federal government workloads or PCI or other things that have pretty stringent, uh, you know, cryptography requirements. So. Yeah, some of the other democratizing elements I see, I think it was perhaps your boss at reInvent last year where it, uh, there was kind of this point of here's the top 10, you know, critical security items that you should do. And I think uh, there was a later presentation uh, a couple of months ago where I really liked, it, it seems very simple, but I liked the, the statement of, you know, if you do nothing else, at least turn on Security Hub and turn on Guard Duty and it's going to cost you very little and it's going to give you a lot more coverage, you know, than the alternative of not having those on. You know, and I see that across, you know, both very large companies who have extensive SIM environments and have lots of analysts and, and go through uh, these things daily, um, who still don't have, you know, maybe uh, some visibility into cloud API access that GuardDuty is going to give them or don't have some of the configuration compliance that the Security Hub's config rules specifically are going to give them. So can you talk about kind of the, the conformance packs and just where where AWS might be going with uh, some of those elements, those provable elements there? Yeah, I think provable is an interesting word. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, Steve, uh, my, my boss, our CISO, Steve Schmidt, uh, presented the top 10 simple things you need to go, every customer ought to go off and do. And those are just really basic hygiene, uh, things like enabling multi-factor authentication on your root account or any, any direct you know, console access. Uh, turning on and, and you know ma managing guard duty. It's super simple to turn on. Uh, it is, again, I think one of our examples of trying to democratize some of the very traditionally very expensive things that you would have to do on your own. So guard duty, um, it, it takes a look at VPC flow logs, whether you have them turned on or not. It takes a look at cloud trail logs, uh, whether you have those uh, custom trail turned on or not. Um, again, those are you know flow logs you can store and analyze yourself. Um, and CloudTrail is on by default for 90 days in the console, and you can certainly turn that on in a custom trail and send it to S3 or a SIM product or a, a log analytics product. But, um, you know, and customers continue to do that for, for other reasons. But GuardDuty does it uh, without you having to plumb up any infrastructure. It looks at uh, basically anomalous. It builds up a pattern model or a, a behavior model of how you're using your account, both from a control plane API perspective with, with CloudTrail and then network flows with VPC flow logs. And it, it, after a period of time, it learns what normal looks like and, and identifies anomalies in those API patterns or, or traffic patterns. Uh, furthermore, it, it, it integrates 
you know, different sources of threat intelligence, CrowdStrike and Proofpoint and our mm-hmm. own sources of threat intelligence that compares the API calls being made, the network flows being made and initiating into your account against known threat actors, uh, whether you supply the threat actor lists or we supply them through our partnerships. It compares the, you know, the activity in your account to known bad actors. So, you know, things coming from Tor nodes, things coming from uh, known command and control hosts where we have threat intelligence and that you could build that yourself. And some customers had on top of AWS before, but this becomes so much more simpler when we have yes. direct access to the infrastructure and those, those um, it looks at DNS logs as well, DNS queries to see if your, if your EC2 instances are reaching out to algorithmically generated domain names, it's a pretty good sign that that might be compromised hosts. So um, trying to make that possible for everyone. Uh, it's super easy to turn on. I'd say Security Hub is pretty similar. Now we launched the the foundational security best practices standard in the Security Hub about a month and a half, mm-hmm. I want to say, ago. Um, and that's just a reflection of kind of well-architected principles, uh, some of the things you used to find a trusted advisor, as well as a whole bunch of best practices we've collected you know, over time. And it's a pretty easy way to turn on and see either through that standard or the Center for Internet Security Foundational Benchmark for AWS, um, something we partnered with, with uh, CIS on. Kind of see how you're doing and give a, a you know, pretty quick look at um, the configuration and, and the sort of adherence to best practices. Uh, conform, I'll, I'll break it down, uh, the conformance packs uh, versus the security best practices stuff in, in Security Hub. We, you know, we're classic Amazonian fashion. Uh, we want to create a lot of selection for customers. Hmm. Some developers want to use um, you know, certain services. Some developers want to have a more managed service. So the, the differentiation, the way to think about this is uh, Security Hub uses managed config rules and potentially other code to do really, uh, I'd say, pretty dogmatic and prescriptive checking, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's our opinionated view of what your best practices ought to be. Um, not a lot of customization that you need to do or could do. Uh, conformance packs are, are part of uh, SSM or Systems Manager, and they also kind of go along with config rules, but you have a little bit more ability to, to customize some of those if that's the need you have. Um, and again, it's, it's a little bit of a difference in perspective. If you want more of a managed service, then Security Hub is kind of the the way to go there, uh, conformance packs are a little bit more customizable. So certainly so we have customers using both. Uh, some, and it depends on which team wants which uh, perspective. So it, it's, uh, you know, we, we're pretty clear in the documentation, the FAQ around Security Hub about when to use which one. Um, so I, I push customers to re- read up on that a little bit. But well, I like how you said, Bill, in there, uh, you talk about, you know, the opinionated uh, items of the top 10. And, and I think... Um, you know, earlier in my career, I was very much kind of the AA. I need as much control as you can possibly give me, kind of like you're saying with conformance packs and in self-defining, you know, some of those config mm-hmm. rules and things. Uh, but then, you know, as especially as a more consulting work is the, the question I get asked probably the most of all my customers is kind of the either what are other people doing or, you know, what should I be doing that I don't know about? And I think at least that top 10 gives people a start, right, is kind of the, hey, if you don't if you don't evaluate anything else at this moment, just start here and just see what you get. Even if you don't agree, I think, you know, one of the findings is kind of the, um, you know, ha- must have a hardware MFA. And I think for mm-hmm. some customers, maybe hardware MFA is not quite, you know, maybe virtual MFA is okay. And so things like that, or they could tweak or they could customize or they could disable that rule or something in the future, but at least it gives them a start, right? Exactly. Uh, if you went really opinionated, uh, Control Towers made some really <laughs> big advances. Uh, you know, when it launched, it it, um, it was a really prescriptive way of. Well, we had this solution called Landing Zone, which is a really popular pattern that customers use. Uh, they were either building it themselves with open source tools or, or stuff on premises, or just even um, some of the partner solutions, or they just home they home build basically a combination of an account vending machine, mm-hmm. so someplace inside the company where developers who want to use AWS can go get a new account. 
it's registered to the organization. It's got you know some integrations with ticketing or with with uh, identity management, and SSO, and those kind of things. But customers were having to build that themselves. So we came out with Landing Zone a few years ago. A uh, bunch of code that you run in your environment uh, uses code pipeline and CloudFormation and and kind of pre-plumbed out that environment for you. Uh, pretty prescriptive in terms of you know the account vending machine account. It had a logging account. It had kind of a shared network. Uh, but customers, you know, they wanted even simpler. So they wanted again more opinionated, more dogmatic, and more prescriptive. So we launched Control Tower, which was this extremely you know rigid kind of way to to build accounts, very in a good way. Um, following AWS best practices. And so in the last couple of months, they've made leaps and bounds of, of feature flow. Uh, super proud of that team. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they now allow you to pull in older accounts, which was, I think, the right. big reason, big thing that customers were waiting for. So you can still, you can set it up in an existing organization. It'll build out a couple of OUs. It'll build out a, or organizational units. It will build out a logging archive account and an audit account. And then it builds that vending machine so that developers can easily get access to accounts. But this concept of guardrails, there's, there's mandatory guardrails, but I think about 20 of them when you launch the product um, that are just, you know, super prescriptive. Um, you know, you encrypt your logs at rest. They'll be write only, be read only to the audit account. I mean, there's just a bunch of, of, of really mandatory hygiene, uh, what we call guardrails, that are, that are provisioned by default when you use Control Tower. So... A customer coming to AWS today, I mean, even an existing one who wants to get right. really standardized on that kind of, uh, you know, opinionated view, uh, you can use Control Tower. A customer coming to the cloud today, though, is getting a much different experience than one even a couple of years ago in terms of governance and guardrails and having that centralized management where it, where it matters, but having that autonomy and that independence and, and kind of speed um, for the developers to use in a very safe way. So pretty happy about that. Yeah, I like I really like those directive controls rather, and that that governance integration. I think um, you know, especially for the larger larger organizations we've worked with, you know, who who have been on the cloud journey for much longer than maybe smaller and medium sized businesses, where you know they have account sprawl at this point. We've gone into customers where you know they say, "I have over two hundred accounts. Uh, I don't even know if people are spinning up accounts. Uh, how do we rectify this? How do we integrate this?" Um, and I think. Before we could point to landing zone, we could point to control tower. But now that, as you say, is now you can also just bring them over, or or at least show that pattern for. Here's how you're going to need to bring these accounts today, and obviously that could take some time for legacy. But then going forward, you know, here's really the model, and you know, inevitably, Bill, all, all engineers are kind of the hey, this won't fit, you know, for my weird extreme use case X Y Z. But I think it helps justify then kind of the, you you know, you may have exceptional use cases, but in, in large regard, 99% of your, of your account management of how you need logs to flow through kind of the, the guardrails you mentioned, you know, whether those are service control policies or other things is these, these are the basic constructs you should probably be trying to adhere to unless you have extremely good reason to have exception and, and, and then furthermore, justify that exception if you're going to try and deviate too far, yeah. right? I'll speak a little bit about account management. Um, you know, one of the things we, we published a blog recently on uh, onboarding services in highly regulated environments. And I'd say most of the large financial institutions and highly regulated customers on AWS have come up with some kind of service onboarding process. Um, you know, the developers want to want to kick the tires. They want to use the latest and greatest. Uh, but the CISO and the risk officer and the compliance teams need to have a little bit of you know, professional courtesy there to give them some time to come across the service, figure out where, you know, where logs need to go, how identity is going to work, how encryption might work in that service. We typically find that when we launch a new service, it's anywhere from 
you know, a couple of days in a really small service or a very agile organization to a couple of weeks where the security team can build out those templates. They can define the guardrails. They can integrate, you know, any sort of like all, all the services, depending on, you know, how high up the stack you move, are going to have obviously CloudTrail logs, but they might have application logs or things that go to CloudWatch events or CloudWatch logs uh, custom to that to that particular service. So, you know, you got to give the security team a little bit of time to reason about the correctness of, of a service and how it's going to be used. But then they kind of put it in their service catalog or they they allow accounts to use it via service control policies. But, you know, it's, it's kind of this negotiation a little bit of, you know, how, how quickly can we onboard these new services? Um, accounts, you know, customers moving at speed in the cloud are, they do have a lot of accounts and that um, that's, you know, a management right. challenge in terms of managing all those accounts in a consistent way, which I think Control Tower helps with. Um, a lot of the new services, you know, Security Hub, Macy, uh, Access Analyzer, a bunch of the, the services are now integrated with organizations. So you can turn them on centrally and have them go to one delegated admin account for that visibility. Yeah, that aggregation is extremely powerful, right? Is I don't want to, as a, you know, even as even a security analyst is, you would not want to try and pull in, let's say, guard duty findings across 20, 30, 100 accounts. That would be very painful. <laughs> you, I mean, you need to pull them in centrally, but you don't want to have to configure that all on individual accounts. You want to do that right. in, a, in kind of a central way. Um, I think we made a lot of progress there. Uh, you know, I, I, I would describe to customers sometimes, uh, you know, Wild animals, tagged animals, and zoo animals when it comes to accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, the wild animals are the accounts you might not know about, and there's mechanisms to, to detect you know, accounts that aren't under management from the central organization or something. Uh, we can, you know, can, customers can work with their sales teams. They can work with their technical account managers to make sure they know about all the accounts in the organization. Um, and then I think there's what I call tagged, t- tagged animals or tagged accounts where you know about the account. You, you might have visibility into it. You know who's responsible for it. You know if there's production or non-production data in that account. But it might not be fully managed. And then you have, I consider uh, zoo animals, which are ones that are fully managed, right? They're fully contained and uh, centrally governed. And I think it's a it's a good way to think about accounts, especially when you have mergers and acquisitions and uh, different business yeah. units across a large company. You're going to end up with, you know, a lot of folks using AWS and, and, and other clouds, to be honest. Um, and getting governance across that's really important. I think, uh, you know, the center of excellence, the cloud center of excellence concept is a good one. Uh, communication, though, is everything, right? So if I mean, back in... Before cloud, you know, people would go out and outsource things, uh, you know, outside of IT. Uh, you know, it, it's really a cry for help, and it's a need for agility. And so, if you let people move fast, um, right. but as long as that communication is there, it's like here's how you get cloud, right? Here's the approved way the organization has decided we're going to use cloud. Um, but if people don't know about that, and you've got nine different business units across, you know, fifty different countries. People are going to do what they need to do to get their job done. And so communication and lowering that bar of entry and lowering that friction to get cloud is super important. It's not just the responsibility of security. They have a big role. But uh, procurement, you know, cost and finance, governance, those, all those roles in the enterprise still have a role to play. But they got to make it accessible, right? And if they build such a, a high bar to get access to IT resources, people are going to find a way to get their job done. And so having a, a well-communicated path to the cloud, um, you know, here, here's a service ticket. Here's a product catalog, you know, here's the team you engage um, and allow you to kind of start easily. Uh, that's, that's, you kind of have to have that culture, right? Is that we're going to, um, it's the default yes versus a default no. Is yes, you can use cloud, but here's how you do it correctly. Um, the nice thing is, is, you know, you're really able to experiment too uh, with, with AWS and, and cloud in general. You're not paying for things up front, right? So, I mean, certainly AWS is pay as you go, um, allows you to experiment, iterate, fail quickly, retool or pivot what you're working on without a huge capital expenditure up front, which is kind of the reason why there was such a hard gate in IT to getting resources, because you're buying, you know, you're buying servers, you're buying network infrastructure. It's kind of a commitment up front. 
before you really even prove out what you're trying to do. And now you can. Explain. Oh yeah, and then you're also trying to, you know, especially if there's capitalization there, is you're trying to show, you know, over the depreciation life cycle of this asset, you know, prove to me the value you're going to, the return you're going to have, and you can't really experiment when exactly. that's the case unless you're experiment. You know, experimenting uh, early in my career used to be, you know, hey, there's some old servers we're about to send to the scrapyard. You can go ahead and use those, right. and and th- and that's not, you know, honestly, that's not going to give people success uh, using old things. Right. right. I think, Bill, you brought up one thing where, you know, going back to my uh, example of security used to be the bouncer. It used to be the main statements were no or don't do that. And I think, you know, you brought the point up of, you know, now it's much more like try it this way or test it first is, you know, go ahead and go ahead and do this and test it. And maybe security is not right. Or maybe what the assumptions that security has about how this might work or how it may or may not be compliant you know, maybe conceptual. So go ahead and give this a shot. Um, you can test it in a, you know, in a sandbox over here in a very controlled environment. Like you said, it's not going to cost you, you know, tremendously upfront, give it a shot. And then security compliance can review if need be, or we can run automated tools against that and verify that, you know, basically test, prove your hypothesis rather than just immediately saying, nope, can't happen. Yeah. And I, th- I think the culture is changing even in, um, even in the engineering organizations. I mean, you know, security, I still think we have work to do in the industry to start teaching elementary school kids and high school kids mm-hmm. and college kids and CS degrees a little, a little bit more on the security side, you know, making part of that core curriculum. But I do think that engineering managers and, you know, developers and senior architects, they, they, they understand that uh, security is another quality attribute, right? They don't want to write buggy code. They want to write performant code. They also want to write secure code. And having that... Um, Having that willingness to understand that compliance is a reality, that you know companies that operate in the global regulatory environment have obligations. That's not just the security team and the audit team um, making life difficult for you. It's really a core part of, of earning trust of your customers, of earning trust of your regulators. And I think there, I, I think the culture of development and engineering has changed. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, coming from banks and, and seeing progress over you know twenty plus years in security as well is is um, that culture is changing. I think that that even uh, your average person with a computer is a little bit, you know, more aware of passwords and multi-factor authentication than they used to be, and that's that's certainly seeped into the engineering organizations, uh, especially in our regulated customers. They know that they're going to have to get security to sign off. They know they're going to have to demonstrate control effectiveness. That you know, audit audit and compliance stakeholders are part of the personas they're they're targeting as well as their end users or, or business partners. Uh, it's just a I think I think we're. I'm optimistic is my point. Yeah, I would agree. I would even point to, you know, a very simple example. I was talking to a customer recently and they had effectively, and it seemed small, but they had effectively renamed their compliance team to trust and the trust and assurance team. That's and awesome. I thought, you know, that's, even though it's small and it's naming it, you know, that's a step in the right direction, right? Is that showing what the value outcome they're trying to get to compliance is, is a driver, but you know, the, the, really what they were trying to build was trust of their customers and assurance that, you know, like you said, the quality was there and that quality extends to, in this case, you know, the financial and personal data that they were collecting and maintaining and managing, you know, on behalf of their teams. Exactly. Yeah. That stewardship concept, I think is really important. It's a, it's a, you know, a good corporate value. It's a, and one of our leadership principles at Amazon is, you know, earn trust of others. And, and I think one of the, the ways we embody that is, is making security a top priority. So, Bill, what are some of the kind of the emerging uh, or innovative th- services that you could you're permitted to talk to us about sure. uh, that you know maybe really are oriented towards either improving you know what you've already offered or you know are really about making things more effective or efficient in security and compliance? 
I highlight, uh, I guess, three things that are kind of fascinating to me right now. Uh, one is organizations, and it's been out there a couple of years, mm. um, but it is a huge part of our investment strategy. Uh, customers want to have consistency in how they manage accounts. I know we've touched on this already, but um, there's still a lot of customers out there that you know predate organizations, and they're moving as fast as they can to get their accounts under organizations. But you see, this, the feature flow from the orgs team has just been fantastic, and they've been knocking out yeah. integrations and automations and things like you know. There's stack sets, there's control towers, a part of this in terms of driving organizations. But getting getting your cloud estate as a company into AWS organizations is a durable advantage. It's going to pay forward. We're going to continue to innovate around organizations to make it easier to manage things centrally. Uh, can't emphasize that enough. We're spending a lot of time with customers, you know, moving them into orgs, and and, and the new customers that are. Uh, you know, coming on today are, are taking advantage of that. So I'm very happy about that. Um, a lot of feature flow there. And it's just one of those Absolutely. things that, you know, we launch a little bit every day, uh, but cumulatively and over time, it, it amounts to a lot. So, you know, I think if you're an AWS customer, uh, you know, talking to your account teams, your solution architects, uh, reading the security blogs, those kind of things, you'll see the value of pivoting toward organizations and leaning in more toward it. Uh, Nitro is something we've been talking about for a while. Mm. Um, it's a concept, you know, that's been out there for a couple of years now. All the new instance families are built on our Nitro architecture and the Nitro hypervisor. Um, that was a long-term you know, investment, right? So, I mean, we, we worked with Annapurna Labs to fabricate our own chips. And we have the Nitro security chip and Nitro cards that kind of break out the functions of the hypervisor uh, onto separate hardware. Uh, really long-term advantage, though, in terms of being able to, to you know, launch things like Nitro Enclave, as we announced last year. Um, that are, It's a new computing model for kind of a trusted execution environment. Really happy about that. Um, that'll launch, you know, later this year in GA. What, what value would that bring to a customer? So what, yeah. what would they gain out of that, uh, whether they knew it or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the, the most common patterns is, is dealing with encrypted data, right? So you, you, if you have an application, uh, that's running on a server, presumably someone might have access to that server. So at some point in dealing with encrypted, you know, ciphertext, that mm -hmm. data, that data is going to be. Uh, plain text in memory, right? And so having you know an operator with access or an application with access to that ciphertext data is something we'd all love to avoid. So our Enclave is kind of similar to an HSM, you know, but not at all as expensive and not at all as constraining. Uh, Enclaves will let you carve out resources from an instance into an Enclave that has no network access and no human access to that data. So you can pass in encrypted data. You know, it'll have a path to get keys out of KMS uh, back through the instance initially. Uh, and then deal with the both the plain text key as well as the plain text data that you're decrypting. Operate on that data, uh, get your results, re-encrypt that data if necessary, and then pass that data back to an application where no human could have accessed that data while it was in, in process. Right. So it's a it's a environment to deal with encrypted data is a great example. Uh, tokenization is another fine example where you pass mm -hmm. in uh, data, it, it tokenizes it and matches it to real you know plain text data and then hands back either token value or some result um, where you don't, you don't ever need to have a, you know, a human or an application with access to that plain text data. So it's a, a confidential or trusted execution environment. Um, there's attestation, cryptographic attestation about the integrity of the image going into the enclave and the code that you're running is cryptographically validated. So it's a, it's a new, a newer model, much more, uh, we think accessible from a developer pattern and, and programmability model. I'm pretty happy about that. But again, Nitro, that, that investment in hardware and, Hypervisor architecture has allowed us to build something like enclaves. It's allowed us to, you know, move move the the trust off of the the um, you know the processor that the customer's code is running on, and move the, the management control plane, storage, uh, and networking functions off of the the same uh, CPU basically as where the computer you know the, the customer's code is running. So there's a lot more 
isolation within the Nitro architecture from a security perspective. A couple of really good talks, you know, Anthony Ligori and others um, who helped build that uh, from reInvent and, and, and past conferences that are up on YouTube. It's definitely Nitro is pretty exciting. I'd say, uh, you know, the third area that we're continuing to invest in and, and have uh, a fantastic team working on is around encryption. So we've done some submissions to NIST of what we think are quantum safe algor- crypto algorithms. Um, we've implemented those already on the KMS hmm. service endpoints. So in addition to, you know, TLS and perfect forward secrecy, you're also uh, seeing some modern implementations of what we consider to be quantum safe, uh, at least today, uh, and what we understand about quantum computing, uh, what we think are quantum safe algorithms for, um, you know, transport encryption, you know, in a modern era that we think are stronger and, and ready to be, you know, defending customers' TLS sessions uh, in, in the world where, you know, quantum computers might exist. So I'm super mm-hmm. happy about those. I'd say um, you mentioned provable security, and I'll, I'll add a fourth thing here. Uh, we, we recently posted a, an article about this on Amazon.science. Uh, which is kind of our research and development page that highlights a lot of our work in this area. But we have a, a team called Automated Reasoning, and they're using basically logic um, to prove security. So when you have a code path uh, and you can execute that entire code path, you can turn that 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 analysis into a, a math problem, essentially, or a logic problem. Right. Um, and you can exercise every part of that code path to prove something is or isn't true. And so this is you know coming from folks that have been at NASA and other academic institutions to use formal proofing and logic, uh, but applying it to security. And it's, it's a really interesting application of, of you know, academic theories to practical real-world problems. Uh, we use this technology initially with S3 and, and reasoning about whether a bucket is open or not or whether a bucket is shared. But it, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of the core engine behind Access Analyzer, which launched last year. Right. Um, that has organization-wide support now as well. And so it covers things where you have a resource policy. So an S3 bucket, a KMS key, a Lambda function, a trust policy, an IAM, SQS, SNS, and then more in the future. Anywhere there's a resource policy where you can share that resource out across accounts or outside your organization Access Analyzer will tell you uh, definitively whether that that resource has been shared beyond your account. And it doesn't need to look at logs. It doesn't need to try to access the object or the resource. It just calculates it based on the sum, the sum total of the policies applied to that resource. It's really interesting. We've also used it in Inspector. It's a feature um, around network reachability. So if, yes, if, you're, yeah. if your network can be defined in policy and in software, you're not having to chase down patch panels or, you know, walk the cam tables of a switch or, or find a firewall that's, you know, daisy chained to another firewall, like tracing that out in an old network used to be very challenging and required some physical investment. Right. But having uh, automated reasoning sit across your VPC, it can see whether a system is reachable or is not reachable from the internet. And that has a bunch of applications. You know, one is vulnerability management and prioritization. So maybe you have CVEs and you want to fix the internet-facing hosts first, but there's a system that's not reachable from the internet. You can not that you shouldn't fix it. You should just prioritize them accordingly. Also, you know, sort of attack trees. Yeah, yeah. I would add, I would just add to that use case. You know, we've especially when stepping into, and I think you know where a lot of that um, provable element of of those policies becomes very valuable is extremely large uh, deployments. We've walked into consulting, security consulting for AWS, on AWS. Is you walk into you know in some case, hundreds of VPCs with all sorts of security groups, all sorts of endpoints. And on the face of it, we might get, you know, a, you know hundreds of triggers for, you know, hey, you've allowed, you know, two, two permissive access in the security group for um, SSH, for port 22 or, or RDP for 3389. And to your exact point is when you're looking at environments that large and you're looking at those policy constructs is, 
almost the equivalent, you know, of, of what you were talking about is, you know, going and pulling cables and things is there are so many constructs that how do I prioritize? You know, what should I really be advising this client or what should my team be remediating in our plans um, to go tackle first? Because if there are thousands of these, you know, we need to know immediately, what are we going to go hit first? And I think that network reachability is a great one of kind of the, hey, this lateral access from this other VPC peered VPC, that's fantastic. That's fine. It's trusted. It's okay. We'll get to it. Maybe we'll tag it or something. But that other piece of, no, really, this actually gets to the internet. You know, this is this is one you need to lock down first is, is the, there's so many policies now um, that it's so invaluable to have that kind of access to that, that next level of validation or confirmation. Yeah, and we want, we want this to be as automated as possible. And we understand that not everybody is going to have uh, I mean, again, skill sets are important and people need to train their workforce. And just like anything, you know, authorization, whether it's network or identity, has never been, I'd say, super, super simple, right? I mean, identity management has been, you know, people have large teams running Active Directory. They have large teams running their SSO infrastructure or multiple IDPs, you know, inside their organizations. Um, so, so having, you know, I think it's important from a, from a resourcing perspective to have folks on staff that do understand IAM policies. They understand resource policies. They understand security groups. I mean, those are things that, you know, it, you got you do have to do a little bit of work to learn, right? But I don't think it's hard. It's just it's just work and somebody has to focus on it. But, you know, obviously tooling is going to help a lot. We don't expect someone to, you know, walk in and, and reason about all these security groups and policies and stuff without additional help. We have, you know, policy simulator and access analyzer and firewall manager and mm -hmm. some of these tools that have come along in the past couple of years to really help get across that um, with customers. I think it's, a, 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 you know, it's a lot, lot easier than, it, than maybe it used to be. Um, and we have a lot of opportunity, I think, to continue improving that, making it simpler. And so how you're doing that, just to, to recap that, is it sounds like you're taking, you know, the, the AWS science, you're taking kind of that, that more traditionally academic view, whether it's of encryption or, or of policy management things, and you're, you're eventually translating that into actual service launches uh, and capabilities. Yeah, that's that accurate. accurate? Mm -hmm. Excellent. And that's... That's fantastic because I'll tell you, there's so many symposiums and things I've been uh, to uh, throughout my career where I see some great poster session, you know, that a that a postdoc stu uh, student is giving on some concept that they're releasing, and I say, hey, this is fantastic, you know, is this? Do you think this could get to the market, or do you, th you know, or is there anyone you're working with, or is anyone interested in this patent or or whatnot? And they kind of they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I've written my paper, you know, that's. I'm getting my degree. That's that's as much as I need. And, and some of those fantastic things I've seen over my career just never never reached the light of day. Yeah, we have. Uh, I mean, the most recent post on on Amazon Science about the automated reasoning team. It you know it talks about all the the PhD interns and folks we have you know on staff, and they're they're really applying it. I mean, it's it's a it's a whole new world. I think of research and security to to anything that you can anything you could you know code you can basically write a test for. And so because everything is software, it's 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 really a lot of possibility. We're, we're really optimistic about how this is going to be applied. Um, certainly seeing the results of that with things like, you know, like Access Analyzer and, and some of the things in the S3 console, some of the things in the Inspector, uh, making some pretty good progress there. So I know, uh, was it Reinforce was, due to, unfortunately due to COVID, was um, not going to happen this year. Is there anything we can expect as far as uh, in the works that kind of either are you, are you planning to kind of make the same statements and releases throughout the year as you normally would, maybe just not the big hurrah, or are you kind of bundling these up for the end of the year? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I had a crystal ball, um, no, you know, it's unfortunate. We were really, really excited with Reinforce last year. It was our first independent security yeah. conference. Uh, you know, very close and dear to my heart. Really happy about the, the attendance. I think one of the things I heard 
you know, people love reInvent, but I think the, the consistent comments from people who attended reinforce was that, you know, pretty much everybody around them was a security professional, right? Re- reInvent's uh, big, it's got a yeah. great popular security track, but really the focus on security for the, the compliance and the audit professional as well, as well as the security practitioner, just having that, that networking, it was a, a smaller yeah. event, smaller event, a little more time for networking. Uh, pretty bummed that it didn't happen this year, obviously unfortunate circumstances, but uh, yeah, you know, we've never been a company that really tries to bundle up a bunch of stuff. I mean, we happen to launch a lot of things at reInvent, but we launch a lot of things every day. Right. Um, there, we, you know, obviously Andy and Werner and others can stand on stage and talk about them in a keynote at reInvent, which is pretty fun and exciting. But, uh, you know, every day there's things launching uh, and the, the pace isn't all that different, whether there's reinforce or reInvent. Uh, we launch, you know, services and features every single day. So we're going to continue to do that. Um, I'd say, you know, for customers that want that level of engagement uh, that you get from a conference, there's, we're doing a lot of virtual things. We have, a, you know, summits that are virtual. There's lots of webinars all the time. If customers want that engagement from us, uh, they need to look no further than their account team. Uh, everybody has an account manager. Everybody has a solution architect. Uh, whether, they, whether they engage them or not, they're, they're ready and standing by, willing to help. Um, they can pull in other resources, specialist solution architects, or, you know, partners is a big part of our how we go to market and how we help customers build on the cloud. We're doing this podcast. I mean, there's there's yep. a whole bunch of ways customers can engage. There's YouTube channels and, and subscriptions and things to all the previous content. So there, I think there's ample content out there. We're continuing to launch new content um, and we continue to talk to customers every day. You know, people have gone to remote work. Uh, we're still doing immersion days with customers. We're still doing virtual executive briefings. There's the AWS meetup groups, you know, that are sort of community led. Yep. There's community heroes out there. I know our partners are doing a lot still. Um, so keep up the enthusiasm. I know uh, one of the things I tell internal teams I work with, uh, the field community for security, is just to take this opportunity to learn. I mean, you're not sitting on a plane anymore. Uh, you're probably not shuffling around between buildings as much as you have. So you have a little more time to focus. You know, come up with a learning path for yourself. You know, find areas, especially in security, where you want to get deeper. I think a, a good approach, I'd say, for, for anyone wanting to get real serious or deeper on, on AWS security is just to follow the well-architected patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, the well-architected pillar, you know, the, the security pillar within the well-architected framework has five areas, uh, six if you include compliance. It starts with identity management, uh, detective controls, infrastructure security, data protection, and incident response. And I think, you know, they're all equal, but I think starting left to right, you know, like learning identity, learning detective controls, uh, kind of following the best practices uh, and just diving deep into what it takes to get that built right is a pretty good use of your time. There's the self-service assessments that you can do in Well-Architected. If you have a workload in AWS, open up the console and go to the Well-Architected tool and start doing the kind of the evaluation uh, of at least of security for, for a given workload. You'll learn a lot. And then where there's gaps in knowledge or skill sets or you have areas for improvement, you know, reach out to your account teams, hit up, uh, you know, hit up the support forums, uh, look at videos. I mean, there's a whole, this is my architecture is a great video series about how to solve specific problems. There's uh, there's all kinds of stuff that, you know, customers can do in terms of a learning path in lieu of conferences, things like the conferences are fun. You know, I love them. I miss them, <laughs> uh, but there's certainly, you know, the biggest, the biggest part of our conferences has always been educational, um, certainly a networking component, but I think they're, they're really hands-on conferences. So there's uh, security jams and there's there's all kinds of labs and workshops and boot camps and, and you know interactive sessions like builder sessions workshops uh, those can all still be executed today i mean we have the, the security workshops are, are open source all the modules are up there on the internet uh, customers can run them themselves they can work with their account team or a partner to kind of you know run some of those events uh, and do them virtually keeping up that engagement is really high excellent, excellent. 
Yeah, I know that, you know, used to be a case where I every, maybe every two weeks I'd look at, you know, the AWS blog for uh, security news and things like that. And now it seems like, uh, Bill, <laughs> your release pace is so great that I think it's almost every other day I now have to look. Yeah, one of the things that, um, you know, customers do express to us is there's just a lot. There's just a lot to learn. We're launching new features every day. Uh, you know, they're having to maintain their on-premise state. They might have multiple clouds, uh, you know, to get get the focus, really. I mean, we launch a lot of things and helping customers understand what to prioritize and what's important. Uh, we want to be a partner, not a vendor. And so, uh, you know, partners tell you where to focus. They prioritize things. They highlight the launches that are most important to you. And I think, you know, our enterprise customers are deeply, deeply engaged with their account teams. I'd say, you know, that's, that's probably the one thing uh, that I would encourage everyone to do is just make contact with your account team. Make sure they know what your challenges are. Um, and that they're aligned to help you, uh, you know, prioritize those feature launches. And as much as we launch everything every day, uh, you know, not every customer is going to be able to turn that on on a dime. So having the account teams, you know, kind of tell you, uh, you know, what's launched recently and what you might think is important based on the services you're using. It's a really good pattern to get in. Yeah, and obviously they can point out things that um, you know you may not even be aware of, or they can keep tabs on some things that, like you were saying with organizations, is you know I've seen that directly is a lot of the, the aggregation and the delegation that uh, can be achieved through organizations now is changing at a at a good pace uh, in terms of being more inclusive of services, and that's the kind of thing too is you know, occasionally you just need a reminder from someone of hey now you know now this can be deployed in this way or now this can be integrated in a way that maybe it couldn't you know a week ago so. Uh, that's exactly. that's really good to have you know someone who can keep some tabs on that for you. Well, Bill, I think we've you know covered quite a few topics uh, today, and I really appreciate your time. There was um, quite a bit around you know some of the the change in uh, positive change in the culture and practices of security teams, and kind of working clo- more closely with the application developers, you know, with the infrastructure um, release. Uh, also, kind of covering some of those. Patterns and practices, you know, great example you gave was, you know, landing zone to control tower going from a, a you know, basic pattern and practice to even up to a, an actual SERP managed service. Um, and then you've given us some great insight into uh, some of the developments and some of the, the new items that are coming about and uh, and what a lot of the, um, you know, research is, is uh proving out to be uh, very valuable in terms of actual service delivery too. So really appreciate your time uh, today. And is there any, anything parting uh, wisdom or, um, or uh, next steps that you would advise other than the, the education you mentioned? Uh, no, thank you so much for the time. It's really been enjoyable to talk with you and, and, um, and work with you guys as a partner. I'm really happy about, uh, you know, getting to, getting to spend time with you and talk to our, our mutual customers and, and potential customers and, and folks using the cloud about, you know, things we're excited about. I think the, the thing I'd leave everybody with is just optimism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, security people, you know, tend to talk about risk a lot and sometimes <laughs> it's hard and thankless, but it, it is it is getting better. And I think uh, when I always tell people in, the, in our security field, you have to be the most optimistic person in the room, right? I mean, we're going to solve these problems uh, in the security challenges in the industry. We're making a ton of progress. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm really optimistic about security being fun. And you get to be a builder again, and I think it's a it's a whole you know it's 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 really fun to to, to do security in the cloud. It becomes uh, it's been a great career. It continues to be, and I'm really excited about what our customers are doing with the platform uh, to to be secure and, and and continually raise that bar. So yeah, thank you so much for the time. Completely agree. Thanks, Bill. You bet. To our listeners, if you want to know more, go to intervision.com for the show notes and more information. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. 
Thank you for listening. Until next time.